Welcome to the Geographical Podcast, brought to you by Geographical Magazine, the official publication of the Royal Geographical Society. I'm Jacob Dykes, a writer at Geographical, and thank you for joining the show. With COP26 kicking off next week, we've dedicated the entire November issue of Geographical to the climate. The print edition is jam-packed with insights on the state of our world and the solutions we have to save it. The world's tropical forests, for example, are our greatest natural assets in the fight against climate change. It's scientifically settled that efforts to halt climate change will fall flat without concerted action to end deforestation and protect the planet's lungs. So with COP26 looming, I thought it was the perfect time to speak with tropical forest experts from around the world. The resulting article, Saving Forests, Storing Carbon, is published in our November print issue and read brilliantly here by the actor Simon Paisley Day. Saving Forests, Storing Carbon Efforts to halt climate change will fall flat without action to protect the world's tropical forests. Jacob Dykes explores the roster of new financial and technological tools for forest protection. Healthline, a medically reviewed website offering mental health advice, defines eco-anxiety as the persistent worry about the future of Earth and the life it shelters. A recommended therapeutic for this ailment is forest bathing, or shinrin-yoku, as the Japanese tradition names it, in which one lays flat and soaks in the forest goodness. Today it sounds like an attractive tonic. It's Monday the 9th of August, and the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has released its sixth assessment report, showing a 50% likelihood that we will reach or exceed 1.5 degrees centigrade of warming a decade earlier than estimated. Any eco-anxious forest bather has likely fled to their local patch, seeking refuge from the headlines. In this context, forests, which soak up carbon from the atmosphere and store it as biomass, are vital. But when they come down, the opposite occurs, and in some parts of the world, this is happening at pace. In 2020, the loss of primary old-growth tropical forest, the most critical for absorbing carbon, increased by 12% compared to 2019, according to GLAD, the Global Land Analysis and Discovery Laboratory at the University of Maryland. More than 4 million hectares of primary forest were lost in 2020, releasing 2.5 billion tonnes of stored CO2 into the atmosphere, double the annual belch of all road vehicles in the USA. Primary forests are an asset that we can't recreate, says Matthew Hansen, leading authority on forest surveillance and director of GLAD. That primary forest loss is increasing in 2020 shows we failed to interdict deforestation. Yet for global emissions targets, there is no alternative. We cannot meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, says Francis Seymour, a fellow at the WRI, the World Resources Institute, without turning around deforestation trends. That's scientifically settled. Protecting forests begins with data. As the condition of forests worsens, 
monitoring technologies have improved. This year, Global Forest Watch, an open-source web application that monitors forests in near real-time, announced the release of two new satellite-based deforestation alert systems. The Radar for Detecting Deforestation, RAD, and GLAD-S2. RAD utilizes radar data from the European Space Agency's Sentinel-1 satellites, which cover the tropics every 6 to 12 days. Their long-wavelength radio waves are able to penetrate smoke, clouds and haze, allowing the system to detect forest losses more rapidly than traditional optical sensors. Meanwhile, with a resolution of 10 metres, GLAD-S2 alerts, also based on satellites and developed by the University of Maryland, have a higher resolution than any past technology. These systems allow local authorities to detect deforestation in real time and mount an immediate response. New 3D models of forest structures are also emerging. The Global Airborne Observatory is using powerful spectrometers which can separate out and measure the components of the atmosphere to map the carbon and moisture content of forests to the scale of individual trees, one step closer to a real-time, pixel-by-pixel perspective of carbon loss through deforestation. These systems aren't solutions in and of themselves, however. Hansen, who oversaw GLAD-S2's development, is keen to point out that the absence of powerful monitoring tools doesn't excuse past failures to curb deforestation. Good data on forests has been available, he says. In 2004, Brazil slowed the rate of deforestation using just one Landsat satellite. NASA launched the first of its Landsat satellites in 1972. These technologies are important, but protecting forests is really a question of governance and political will. Headley Grantham of the Wildlife Conservation Society agrees. We can have the best tools and indices of forest integrity, all these enabling conditions, but it's up to the countries to do something. The most important thing after COP26 will be how ambitious they are in achieving their nationally determined contributions and forest integrity should become part of these commitments. In short, scientists and engineers can provide the information, but acting on it will require widespread structural change. As things stand, 10 to 15% of all anthropogenic emissions come from land use changes, predominantly tropical deforestation. In Amazonia, for example, Speculators often buy or seize land, sell the timber, graze cattle on it, and then sell it on to soya farmers. In Indonesia, forest and peatland might be illegally burned by speculators to ready it for palm oil producers. And in West and Central Africa, forest can be clear-cut by farmers who plant cocoa and other cash crops. Deforestation continues because there's demand for such commodities, and because the system as a whole can prove enriching. In our economic model, we trade commodities, and that increases the wealth of developing nations, while increasing the global standard of living, says Hansen.
but the impact is devastating. One study published this March in Nature, Ecology and Evolution calculated the consumption of commodities across the G7 countries accounts for the loss of, on average, 3.9 tropical forest trees per person per year. Unstitching this global chain of accountability is complex, but there's an obvious starting point. Ultimately, commodities serve global markets, says Seymour. That's why there's been so much focus on getting the consumer-facing manufacturers, the retailers and intermediaries, to put backwards pressure on their supply chains to get deforestation out of their products. That pressure has, in the past, led to private sector commitments to stop purchasing commodities from recently deforested land. If I'm a company like Unilever or Nestle, the easiest thing is to stop buying commodities from problematic places, she explains. But they've realized that that doesn't solve the problem. It just leaves the field open to buyers who care less. To combat this, solidarity across international trade streams is critical and has been effective in the past. After a 2006 Greenpeace investigation revealed that three U.S. commodities traders were responsible for millions of hectares of deforestation, companies responsible for 90% of trade in Amazonian soy signed the Brazilian Soy Moratorium, an agreement not to purchase soy grown on recently deforested land. Before the moratorium, 30% of soy fields in the Amazon involved clearing forests. After... 99% was grown on land that had been deforested long ago. The moratorium was powerful because such a large share of the soy sector made commitments, says Robert Heilmeier, an environmental economist at the University of Santa Barbara, California. The combination of private sector commitment and governmental willpower contributed to an 84% decline in Amazonian deforestation between 2004 and 2012. Many point to Indonesia as another positive example. In 2020, for the first time, the country dropped out of WRI's top three countries for primary forest loss. Many factors led to the decline. A favourable El Nino year and price fluctuations in oil palm have both been touted. However, the Indonesian government also made efforts to strengthen law enforcement to prevent forest fires and illegal land clearances. And in 2018, President Yoko Widodo issued a moratorium on new oil palm concessions in primary forest, although he was criticised for excluding key forest areas. That year, Indonesia recorded a 45% drop in deforestation inside moratorium areas compared to 2002 to 2016. From the private sector, no deforestation, no peat and no exploitation commitments now cover 80% of Indonesia's pulp and paper industry and 83% of its palm oil refineries. The government is now under pressure to make its moratorium permanent, a move described by Indonesia's National Development Planning Agency as the most efficient policy the Indonesian government can implement to achieve its emissions reductions targets. However, public-private partnerships can unravel. 
Under President Jair Bolsonaro, Brazil again topped the list for annual primary forest loss in 2020. The nation cleared 1.7 million hectares, more than three times that of the next highest country, the Democratic Republic of Congo. The Amazon holds 40% of the world's tropical forests, but now emits more carbon than it's storing due to deforestation and wildfires. Our environmental policies, said Bolsonaro during his 2018 election campaign, are weakening the country. He has since favoured deregulation to permit logging, mining and farming in the forest. At the international level, efforts to curb deforestation have focused on creating financial mechanisms that turn forest protection into a business model capable of competing with potential gains from deforestation. In December 2007, representatives from 180 countries came together in Indonesia for COP13. There, the UN's Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation Scheme, or RED+, Plus, became the key forest protection strategy. RED+, Plus finance, takes a few different forms. First, countries that manage to effectively protect forests can receive payments from donor country governments or multilateral institutions, the most famous example being Norway's bilateral agreements for forest protection payments with Brazil and Indonesia. Alternatively, Red Plus payments can be made in the form of credits purchased by private sector buyers on the voluntary carbon market. Criticism of the scheme abounds. First, Red Plus initiatives are mostly carried out on a project-by-project basis, and critics say that this has led to conflicts of interest from sponsoring private companies. A study released last year that analysed 12 Red Plus voluntary projects in the Amazon basin showed that all of them failed to set accurate baselines, leading them to overstate emissions reductions. Second, many believe that the carbon price paid by Red Plus schemes which is often below five US dollars per tonne, rarely provides a competitive incentive compared to the gains possible from agribusiness. And last, the project-level approach means that deforesters target patches of forests that are unprotected by Red Plus projects, simply exporting deforestation elsewhere. There are reasons to question whether project-scale interventions could ever have addressed the major drivers of deforestation, says Seymour. But in the run-up to COP26, change is in the air. In April this year, US President Joe Biden unveiled the Lowering Emissions by Accelerating Forest Finance, or LEAF, coalition which aims to smooth out some of Red Plus's cracks. It has mobilised $1 billion US dollars in commitments to enter into advanced purchase agreements for carbon credits generated by effective forest protection programmes. LEAF has a number of benefits. First, it will be less prone to speculation than project-scale Red Plus credits. Carbon credits generated by LEAF projects that are bought by a company can't be sold on for a profit. Any windfall from a rise in carbon price goes back to the country that originally generated the credit. Second, carbon credits paid for by LEAF 
will be based on a minimum carbon price of 10 US dollars per ton. The price point is a significant breakthrough, says Seymour. Third, LEAF will create for the first time a market for voluntary carbon credits at the jurisdictional scale, capturing larger areas of forest than Red Plus projects. Last, whereas Red Plus made carbon credit payments to projects based on an array of differing standards and methodologies, LEAF's credits will be verified through a new carbon crediting standard called Art Stroke Trees, which sets out a series of requirements that individual jurisdictions must meet to be eligible to sell carbon credits to companies. We've been waiting for a jurisdictional Red Plus system for years, says Daniel Nepstad, director of the Earth Innovation Institute, which is helping to develop the Art Stroke Trees crediting standard. Like many others, he believes that this financial infrastructure comes at a time when more finance is pouring into anti-deforestation efforts than at any other point in history. We're seeing boiling demand for forest carbon, but there hasn't really been a scalable supply of offsets yet. Leaf could be the beginning, he says. Sadly, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought unforeseen challenges. Experts agree that debts are likely to stifle interest in protection schemes such as LEAF, where payments may not come through until 2024, tempting countries to exploit forests for more rapid returns. The direct economic impacts will likely make governments less oriented to international efforts, says Seymour. Real-time deforestation data support Seymour's assertion. According to Amazon, an independent NGO that monitors Amazonian deforestation, August 2021 saw the highest monthly recorded forest loss since 2008, with 10,476 square kilometres cleared as of 27th of August. Elsewhere, forest protection funds are being diverted due to the pandemic. Indonesia passed the omnibus law to spur post-pandemic job creation, which is likely to see environmental regulations relaxed, and the nation's food estate programme will now see rice and staple crops become exempt from the current forest clearance moratorium. To entice countries that may reach for quick returns through deforestation, experts are urging the international community to deepen the funds available through LEAF. Carbon credits must become part of the post-pandemic recovery for tropical nations, says Nepstad. The benefits that forests bring to regional economies and public health may offer another way to entice protection. International schemes are usually designed to compensate countries for forfeiting the development opportunities wrapped up in their forests, but increasingly, studies are demonstrating that forests impart benefits that are paramount to the agricultural and economic backbones of tropical countries and to the health and security of their populations. Forests regulate regional moisture for agriculture, protect communities from floods, boost biodiversity and regulate local surface temperatures. Experts agree that without effective forest protection, the long-term viability of agribusiness in tropical regions will be jeopardised. 
One study in the southern Brazilian Amazon, where 30% of the forest has already been lost, estimates that under weak environmental governance, deforestation will have a negative impact on rainfall, leading to productivity-associated revenue losses of 5.6 billion US dollars for soy cultivation and 180.8 billion US dollars for beef production. Elsewhere, studies in the DRC show that deforestation is reducing the Congolese forest's ability to cycle moisture, which is combining with climate change-driven droughts to extend the Congo Basin's dry, unproductive season. Working conditions too can be affected. In Indonesia, researchers have shown that deforestation increases the wet bulb temperature by 2.84 degrees centigrade, reducing worker productivity by up to 10%. This emerging science shifts the focus. If you take into account all of these local benefits, we no longer need to expect international finance to cover the entire opportunity cost of maintaining tropical forests such as the Amazon, says Seymour. Part of the reason we're seeing Indonesia reduce the deforestation rate in the last few years is because the 2015 wildfires were so traumatic for public health that they concluded they needed to protect their forests. That was a domestic choice. It didn't have much to do with the global climate change. For now, tropical forests remain on a precipice. Through decades of poor stewardship and pressure from agribusiness, their quality is diminishing, and in the wake of the pandemic, governments are turning to them for fast payouts. But there is hope. More finance is pouring into protection mechanisms than ever before. A carbon credit market is poised to channel that finance to forest protection schemes. Scientists are showing how forest benefits flow into economies, and governments have better technology to monitor and protect forests. As the international community gathers at COP26, we hold a collective breath and imagine a planet that harnesses these opportunities to protect its lungs. They are the bedrock of a healthier, more sustainable future. That was actor Simon Paisley Day reading an article written by myself, Jacob Dykes, for the November issue of Geographical Magazine. On the next episode of the podcast, we'll be speaking with expert climate scientists, hearing just how important COP26 will be for climate action. Join us next time for more.